Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. Today we'll reach back uh, just a couple of months. Uh, my uh, conversation from then with Charles Learson. He's the uh, author of a new biography of Butch Cassidy. And at the end of the program, hope you stay tuned for this, a commentary, a new commentary from our new UPR commentator, John Taylor. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There are few subjects that interest us more generally than the adventures of robbers and bandits. That's Scottish writer Charles McFarlane, quoted in Charles Learson's new book. One such outlaw was Robert Leroy Parker, born in Beaver, Utah, raised in Circleville, who became, of course, Butch Cassidy. Charles Learson brings the notorious Butch Cassidy to vivid life, revealing the fascinating and complicated man behind the legend in the new book, Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. Charles Lurson joins us for the program today. Charles Lurson is a former executive editor at Sports Illustrated. He also spent 11 years at Newsweek, where he won the National Mental Health Association Award for a cover story on alcohol in the family. He's written for Rolling Stone, Esquire, and the New York Times. His books include Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, Crazy Good, The True Story of Dan Patch, The Most Famous Horse in America, and Blood and Smoke, A True a Tale of Mystery, Mayhem, and the Birth of the Indy 500. He's winner of the Sabre Baseball Research Award and lives in Brooklyn. So I guess the first question, uh, how did you get into this uh, subject? Well, I, uh, I had just come off a book about writing a book about Ty Cobb, who uh, is a baseball player, for those who, who don't know or don't remember, who played uh, between 1905 and 1928, one of the legendary baseball players of all time. And I was kind of stuck for a subject, and my editor uh, suggested uh, Butch Cassidy to me. And um, at first I was a little skeptical or hesitant as far as my own abilities go. I, I, didn't, I hadn't spent a lot of time be- before studying Western history or outlaw history. Of course, I'd seen the movie, but the movie is 51 years old now. I, I've probably seen it more than once, like most people over the years. But... Um, uh, but but what did intrigue me beyond not knowing since I didn't know anything about Butch Cassidy when I started, except from the movie, and that may have been all wrong. Um, what did intrigue me was that the story took place in this in this period of history, which has always interested me, which is the period the late 19th and the early 20th century, like roughly the 1880s to uh, roughly the start of the First World War. And I've always been interested in that period because I think that as much as the last 30 years with the digital explosion and cell phones and all have have changed the world, and and it certainly has changed the world, that that period of time was more revolutionary and more fundamentally wrenching uh, for human beings uh, because of all the societal, all the technological changes, uh, of course, the advent of electricity in cities, the um, you know, the automobile came during that time, the movies, the telephone, um, the typewriter. Um, there was also an explosion of literacy at that time, which led to an explosion of advertising. So people could be influenced and suckered even, you might say, uh, because now they could read. Um, and uh, I just find this a, a fascinating time. And Butch Cassidy fell squarely in that time. And in fact, he was at the tail end of the Old West, and, and, uh, and he was living at a time when, when it was getting harder and harder to be an American outlaw. Uh, it's, it's interesting. You, you bring things forward. In fact, you begin the book with uh, one of the 
Wild Bunch, uh, living into the 1960s. Yeah, uh, and, and a woman uh, on top of it. Uh, it, it. It was a reminder to me that uh, uh, the, uh, the Wild West was uh, not, not that long ago. Um, and, and, and that some, uh, it, this was a woman who was kind of a minor member of the gang, but a, uh, a real member of the gang. Um, uh, and, uh, she, she lived in, lived in Missouri and died there in 1961. So her name was Laura Bullion and she was, you know, probably someone who, she was a girlfriend of a, a couple of different guys in the, in the gang over the years. And, uh, you know, may have held the horses for those guys and she and you know, uh, at a at a train robbery or something like that, and she lived into the era where she could have voted for Kennedy or Nixon, or as I say in the book, she could have heard Del Shannon saying "Run, run, 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 run away." <laughs> and uh, so, so, so the the uh, not exactly overlapping of eras, the closeness of the time of the old West and the Wild West is sort of illustrated in in, in her life. And uh, of course, she died very poor. And uh, which was typical for an outlaw. It's rather impossible to find the story of an outlaw who uh, actually uh, proved that crime pays uh, and who and who didn't die uh, broke. Except actually, now that I think of it, as I'm talking to you, Butch Cassidy uh, had just made a, the, one of the biggest scores of his career a few days before before he died. He didn't get a chance to uh, to, to to spend it or to, or rather to below it all, as, as, those, uh, as those guys used to do in those days. There was a, uh, sort of a machismo unwritten rule that you have below all the money and a, with a big party and spend, spend it as, as fast as you could once you've made it. <laughs> so um, it, 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 made, it made for outlawry being something that we don't perhaps uh, think of it as first, uh, at first glance. It, it, it really wasn't a way to make money. It was almost like an, a performance art form. That's what a lot of these guys, uh, Western Outlaws, was done for its own sake, for the sake of the of the thrill, of the solving of the puzzle of how to knock off the train or knock over the bank. And, uh, and, and the money was perhaps just a way to keep score in the meantime. Hmm. Uh, yeah, another part to illustrate this was not that long ago. Uh, Butch Cassidy's uh, youngest sister was alive in 1969, right? The, the film. In fact, she would. You, right. You're right. She was disgruntled. She didn't get any money from the film. Right. I say she she was alive and kicking because she didn't get any money from Hollywood. Lula Bettinson, her name was, and yeah, Butch had 13 siblings, and uh, she was not the youngest, but one of the youngest. And so, in 1969, she was still alive and. Uh, and 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 hadn't hadn't ever. I don't think she ever met Butch. She left home before um, before she she was born, probably. But I I in the course of researching the book met a guy who was a grandson of a Butch's real best friend, who wasn't the Sundance kid, but he had a better best friend, a better bestie uh, named L. V. Lay L. A. Y who I think is related to the potato chip lay people uh, somehow. And uh, Elsie uh, had a grandson who uh, he has since passed away, but uh, I was able to talk to him uh, and interview him, and he had met Elsie. So 
I met a guy who <laughs> who knew Butch Cassidy and and interacted with Butch Cassidy's best friend. So yes, as you say, there's there's numerous examples of the of the old West not being all that far away. So uh, Elsie Lay uh, lived. Uh be quite old, at least for an ex-outlaw. Went to Hollywood, advised actors, I think? That's right, yeah. yeah. As far as we can tell, he, he lives into his 70s, and he became a, I don't know if the, not exactly the water commissioner, but he took a rather high level in the water department in L.A., an important department out there, and uh, and did that. And he also did some side work, as, as some of these other uh, ex-outlaws did, as consultants in the movie industry, Early, very crude, silent movies that were being made, and and L.Z. Lay is buried in um, oh, blank, uh, the, the famous Hollywood Cemetery uh, yeah. out there. Uh, Forest Lawn. Forest it? Lawn. Yeah. Forest Lawn. Yeah. And uh, and he's buried there as a modest headstone. But um, so uh, yeah, they, uh, the, the the gang <laughs> the gang got around for uh, and after. Uh, uh, Before the book begins, you have a quotation, uh, Scottish writer Charles McFarlane. There are few subjects that interest us more generally than the adventures of robbers and bandits. Uh, I guess there is something that uh, we're interested in outlaws, I think. Yeah, we are, and that's been a a historian named Eric Hobswam, who's a very famous historian, and he, he wrote a book called Bandits, which traced this whole phenomenon around the world, and down through history, so it's um, it's not purely American. It seems to be more of a human instinct is to admire robbers and bandits. Um, of course, some are more admirable than others, and a lot of robbers and bandits, like Robin Hood, of course, famous non-American, not modern uh, age uh, robber, uh, was admired because he he stole from the rich and gave to the poor, and a lot of other. Uh, Bandits and outlaws have tried to have tried to wear that same mantle and have tried to say that they were like that, which was actually more like that than than, than your average outlaw. Because I mean, one reason Butch was admirable was because he was he was not uh, preying on the little man, the everyday person, uh, trying to make a go of it in the West and in in, uh, in Utah. It was uh, you know it was a very tough thing to do in those days and. Uh, people had been had been kind of lured out west. A lot of people under false pretenses that it was the ground was fertile and that you know they would prosper and uh, uh, as ranchers and farmers. And that turned out to be a lie. And um, and so many people uh, struggled, and it was uh, beyond struggling. It was a very hard thing. And then they were exploited by the banks and the railroads and the big cattle companies. Uh, that were moving out west and and had participated in in many cases in luring them out west in the first place, and so Butch concentrated on uh, those big corporate entities, and he would he was interested in, in bedeviling them and and injuring them financially, and and he wasn't uh, interested in hurting the average person. So what what would happen was uh, during a robbery. Butch would go into a bank or on a train, and people would be scared, and they'd they'd hold out their valuables to him and the gang and say, um, you know, don't hurt us. Here's our money, and he they would turn down that money, and uh, uh, and say, 
No, we don't want that. We want what's in the safe. We want what's in the vault. We don't want your money. So this meant that that Butch was taking the same risk uh, for uh, a lot less money than than he might have he might have garnered from the. Uh, he was a man of principle, you know, because uh, he t- he turned down that he turned down that money, and that's why his legend grew, and that's why one reason why people loved him. He was also very personally uh, charismatic and, and and a lovable sword. But he was a bedeviler of corporations. He, he didn't exactly wasn't exactly Robin Hood, but he robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. Uh, but those parties and those celebrations. Those blowouts that I mentioned earlier, they would help the local economy a lot, and and money would trickle down to the to the folks around. He was also very generous when when people asked just flat out asking for money. One of his one of his old friends later said that Butch helped more people than FDR and uh, with a lot less red tape. So, um, but that was his reputation uh, when he physically faded from the scene around the, the turn of the 20th century. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and uh, my conversation with uh, Charles Learson. His new book is Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. Following the break, we'll uh, pause discussion of Butch Cassidy very briefly to talk about uh, the overall situation in the West. And uh, Charles Learson in his book uh, pushes back on a romanticized view of life in the West uh, at this time. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University, joining the nation and state in celebrating significant voting rights anniversaries in 2020. The 150th anniversary of suffrage for Utah women, the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the United States, and the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Hi, this is Jason Greenock from Lee's Marketplace, inviting you to join Utah Public Radio and Jump the Moon Art Studio for a drive-in movie night at the American West Heritage Center, Monday, October 19th, to celebrate National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Details at upr.org and awhc.org. Hope to see you there. And that event is coming up tonight. Don't miss it. Information at upr.org. Thanks for joining us, Praxis, Utah. We're talking about Robert Leroy Parker on the program today. He was born in Beaver, Utah, raised in Circleville. He became, of course, Butch Cassidy. And we're talking with Charles Learson, whose new book is Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. I want to pause discussion of uh, Bush Cassidy. We obviously come back to him, but it, uh, I was very struck by uh, you have passages in the book where you push back on this romanticized idea of the West, right? Uh, and you say Bush Cassidy didn't have a romantic view of the West because he grew up in the West, right? Um, so I just want to read this, um, this is from page twenty. Um, you talk about the, the Homestead Act of 1862. There's many people then, you know, streamed past the, the 100th Meridian and uh, sought their fortune um, 
you uh, you say uh, the main effect of the larger land parcels was to leave the homesteaders in a state of what Bernard DeVoto called fearful isolation from one another, especially during lengthy winters. More than a few committed suicide, while others slouched back east, broken in sundry ways. Still others stayed and survived, barely, as small-time cattle and sheep raisers at least until the big corporate ranchers, by bribing local officials or in some cases by simply murdering homesteaders, finally got hold of their grazing land. You go on to say that, uh, you know, then some of these homesteaders turned to drink. It's uh, the, the romanticized view we have from Little Home of the Prairie and other things is, uh, in many cases, wasn't true. That's, that's, that's correct. The, the woman who wrote the bio, recent biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder said that the Whatever you might say about the Homestead Act of 1862, I think it was the uh, it that it, it it ruined more lives than it helped, and uh, and and the problem was as, as I mentioned before of, of 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 bringing people out west under false pretenses. People, you know, some people knew they said, well, it, it doesn't rain out there. How are we going to grow? How are we going to raise uh, uh, animals? And uh, they were told, there's a famous line that once somebody came up with, that the rain will follow the plow. In other words, if you start farming, it'll start raining, trust me. Um, you know, it, to me, it sounds a little bit like a hydroxychloroquine or something. You know, it, it, it's like, it's, it's just a promise made up of wishful thinking and, uh, you know, just get out here and everything will be fine. And, of course, it wasn't fine. And another thing that happened was the, the, the Homestead Act uh, originally had been for, uh, I think it was 60 some odd acres of land that you were given free, that the government owned the land if you just agreed to improve on it, meaning build a, a structure and, uh, and, and farm. And, and, um, and, and, and out west, because of the, uh, the rain was so scarce, they realized they had to give people more land uh, <clears throat> because, you know, per square foot or whatever you mentioned, uh, however you want to measure it, there's a uh, the, the yield was, was so low, so they gave people 160 acres of, of land, and what, what that did was create this isolation that you mentioned, that people were so far from one another that they were not only suffering and, um, uh, and, and scraping by, uh, barely able to feed their family, never mind selling the crops or selling the animals, uh, and then, now they were isolated on top of everything else. So it was it was very, uh, it was a very punishing uh, way of life, and a lot of people, as, as I say, and you mentioned in that passage that you read, just kind of gave up and, and went back east, or, or, or they moved on and, and wound up in California and Oregon or someplace like that. You write that uh, uh, the Sundance Kid um, it, it grew up in um, what was his name, Henry Longabaugh, right? Harry Longabaugh. Harry yeah. Longabaugh. Uh, he he was uh, born in Pennsylvania and and came west after reading dime store novels. That so he he was he kind of had this romanticized view, and, and it was the opposite apparently with Butch Cassidy that he he was a wannabe New Yorker. You say, right? Yeah, Butch was born in Beaver, Utah, uh, on uh, April thirteenth. Uh, it was a Friday the thirteenth, uh, eighteen sixty six. Uh, he was a Civil War baby, born right after the. The war ended, and uh, Mormon parents—not not very religious Mormon parents—but uh, and his parents were both born in England, had been converted uh, or brought, but brought, came back with Mormon missionaries who were looking to um, create the colony of Deseret and you know stock Utah with with Mormons. 
who would farm and work the land, and his 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 parents were caught up in that, and they they had one kind of uh, set of uh, challenges in England. They worked in factories there, and and they came to America, and they had a whole other set of challenges trying to make a go of it in southern Utah. Um, but yeah, which was born Robert Leroy Parker, uh, and uh, he it, and the family moved to Circleville. Uh, not long after, his cabin is still there. It was actually greatly improved upon recently, and uh, since I visited, actually, for the book, and uh, it's, uh, it's it's worth a trip. Um, and uh, you can see the conditions under which he grew up, um, and, and you can see maybe why, like, a lot of first-generation Americans, he looked around him at the life his parents had and said, I don't want that. I want something better, and I want you know we 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 heard that people so many people that grew up on the Lower East Side of New York, which was a tough place to grow up. The very people packed together and in uh, very dense uh, population density there, and and, uh, and 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 not a lot of money around. And a lot of those people became comedians or or entertainers, and uh, and I, that's pretty similar to what happened to Butch. He. He had an entertainer's instinct, quite literally, from the beginning. He was kind of an impresario, putting on shows for the local kids, and he had little rodeos with the uh, what you might say child-sized animals, like riding goats instead of riding bulls, and 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 uh, uh, and that was his instinct from the start. And uh, then he invented himself, reinvented himself gradually by experimentation, first as he went from Robert Leroy Parker to George Cassidy, and then somehow he became Butch Cassidy, uh, which is a pretty good name. And uh, and he told people that he came from New York City, uh, which he didn't. Uh, he, he got to New York pretty late in his life. Not until 1901 did he get to New York, so it was uh, um, 35 years later, I guess. Um, and, um, uh, and, and and that's the way that's the way he went. And you might say, well. How could I say he's an entertainer and he was trying to make life lighter and easier and more fun for himself and the people around him if he's an outlaw? But he's an outlaw with a strict set of rules, unwritten as they were. And, and you know, one of them is not he didn't kill people and he didn't he didn't physically harm people. Uh, he, the, the, he and the gang might intimidate uh, their victims, but that was really to avoid violence as much as anything else. Now, I say he never killed anyone. When I say that, an asterisk should appear over my head, and I won't spoil the uh, uh, that part of the story for someone who might want to read the book. But, uh, but generally speaking, and throughout his career, he forbid his gang members to physically hurt people, and he followed that, that same rule himself. So that's that, I, that was a pleasant surprise to me uh, uh, doing the research that I didn't have to spend several years of my life studying somebody whose who's M.O. was just like to pull out his gun and shoot someone in the face and then take their money. It, with him, it was, it was hardly that. It was, it was a, kind of an art form and an entertainment form, being an outlaw. You recount a story in the book, um, this young uh, teenage German immigrant uh, Sees this bright-eyed cowboy uh, come up, come to town, I guess, or um, having lassoed a mountain lion. 
Um, and, right. and he's bringing this in for entertainment, I guess. Um, and this young man you say fell immediately in love with Butch Cassidy. You go on to say uh, it was easy to be smitten by, by Cassidy. I wonder if you could talk about his, his Cassidy's, I guess he did have some charisma. Yeah, tremendous tremendous. Pretty much the one thing the movie got right uh, about him, uh, and Paul Newman got right without without really doing any research. But uh, yeah, in, the, in that story, uh, this this I, I like that story because it showed a lot of things all at once about the West. How there were a lot of recent immigrants out out in the West from Germany and Sweden and Italy uh, that Butch uh, crossed paths with in the in, in, in the course of the book he does too. And uh, and had the, the, their food and their uh, uh, and learned about their culture, but this kid who recently arrived from Germany is watching him, uh, and and this is an example of not so much being an outlaw but being an entertainer. That Butch saw this mountain lion, and the reason he he got, was able to see the mountain lion perhaps and get close to him was because there was a the, the, the game animals in the area were already. Uh, like the buffalo were already being over over hunted and and they were disappearing. So it was interesting the deer and the other animals like that that the the mountain lions would normally feed on weren't weren't around in, in in sufficient numbers. And so the mountain lions were getting closer to civilization. Anyway, just a little side note. But and the butch saw one threw a lasso over it and thought it would be fun. This is real butch Cassidy. He thought it would be fun to bring it into town and tie it up on the to a, a you know a hitching post or in the middle of town, and, and that's what he did. And the kid saw this, and of course, a young boy. That's you know that's really going to be <laughs> interesting. Uh, you know, Butch was very conscious of the fact that the West is can be a, a beautiful place, but that the life of a cowboy was very boring, and the life of a rancher was very boring and hard, and but it was also you know repetitious. And when, whenever travel was necessary, it was such an arduous thing that everything was so far away from the other thing, and it took so long. So stunts like this, uh, you know, which would tr- shoot your hat off with a gun and <laughs> or, you know, almost like a parlor tricks that he did, uh, were ways of, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, lightening up the atmosphere and, and making things uh, more fun. You write that uh, many outlaws were, were very conscious of their media Im- image. You, you had to have a good nickname, right? Uh, and uh, cultivated their media image. Yeah, well, some of them were, mm-hmm. and it, it was there were a few. There were a few more like Butch in some ways. I mean, Jesse James was certainly like that. Uh, you know, not an admirable man in any way. He did kill, and he and he killed, and he and he robbed under the false flag even of the confederate flag whatever you think of the confederate flag he was using it he was using it uh, dishonestly apart from everything else saying he was he was con- continuing the confederate cause and that he was actually just robbing and, and killing people to, to, to get money uh but he had a hired publicist the newspaper man who uh who shaped his image and got his name in the paper in a certain way um so you know he did that uh, there were a few other guys who were, you know, were, were conscious of their image to a degree, and and uh, to a great degree, though they were, as, as I say in the book, you know, Mark Twain called the average person, <laughs> not the average person, but the average 
outlaw that he found, like a human donkey, you know, like just kind of a, uh, that was Twain's term, just a stupid guy, very heavy-handed, vulgar, uh, brutal, violent person. Um, and it was because people like that were actually, you probably more expect to be in the outlaw business, that Butch, Butch was stood out to me and became this intriguing figure because he wasn't at all like that. He was quite literate. He and his friends, L.Z. Ray, who we mentioned, and Harry Longabaugh, the Sundance Kid, the three of them were big readers, and they would often travel with books in their saddlebags and, um, and uh, uh, you know, and, and talk about books and ideas, which we have, we have several letters from him which show him to be uh, witty and um, charismatic and in touch with the, the popular culture. In one of them, he quotes a, line, a lyric from a popular song of the day. Um, he was very interested in clothing and looking good and sort of cutting-edge clothing. He died wearing a yellow cashmere suit. So, uh, he, you know, in Bolivia, in the, in the backwoods. So he, uh, he, he was conscious of civilization. He was very interested in society and civilization, even as he chose a profession that made him kind of hide in the shadows and, and stay out of the spotlight, stay out of the center of town. What if you could uh, tell me a little bit about how uh, how Robert Parker made this transition? He, he grows up in a Mormon family in Circleville. Uh, how, how do we get from there to the uh, to, to Butch Cassidy to to you know this outlaw? Well, I think it's some of the things that we talked about already. You know, the, the boredom, just who he was in particular. The, the the you know, just it's hard to say why people have a certain you know bent. They seem to be born a certain way, and he was born with this instinct to make people laugh. And uh, Lula, his sister, who was still alive when the movie came out, would, would recount how family stories, which she didn't witness herself, but which were told around the dinner table of him, you know, setting his mother on a throne and saying she was the queen of England. And, and, and then have, uh, he'd also stage races with uh, uh, crickets, uh, like the, the Kentucky Derby, and I mentioned the rodeos and all. So he had that instinct that he worked his way there. And, 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 and he, he, he also... He also had this chip on his shoulder about the the corporations that were that, that were coming into the West, and those two things kind of merged those two ideas into him becoming an outlaw, but a certain kind of outlaw who would uh, who would be double these corporations and 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 would and in a sense would fight for the for the common man out there. He didn't like he he felt bad about what was happening to his father Maxine and his mother Annie. And, and his and his siblings and how hard life was and he didn't think it was he didn't think it was fair and um, and he was curious about the world so he, he went out and traveled around he took it was almost like I say in the book like taking a year uh, abroad or a year uh, you know when you take a year off from college and you and you travel around and uh, usually you just say you're going to do that and don't do it but he actually went through the West and saw what was going on and witnessed this. You had this cattle bubble happening at the time where there was too much money being thrown at these cattle farms, uh, cattle ranches, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and too much being invested in them, and, uh, uh, and, and that was going to explode, and eventually it did. And uh, he observed these things. He observed the copper industry uh, exploding because... Uh, Copper was going to be used in the wires that back in the east 
that were going to be that cities now were demanding all this copper wire and wanting to buy all this copper wire because they they were electrified now the cities back in the east. So he he observed this and he was very curious about this. Um, uh, he, he didn't want to just hunker down and 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 shovel manure out of a stall every day. He, he wanted to go around and and see what was happening and 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 he did. Uh, and, and his whole life was. He did, as you say, transition into this from Robert Leroy Parker. He became Butch Cassidy, and Butch Cassidy was known as an outlaw. But his whole life was a series of second thoughts because he he uh, swung back and forth between the straight life and the outlaw life. Uh, the grass was always greener when he was when he was going straight and trying to make it as a cattle rancher. He, he it was too life was too dull for him, so he. He'd get back into outlawry, and when he was an outlaw, he didn't like the idea of having to run all the time and being pursued and having could, not being able to sit with your back to the door and having to worry all the time. That feeling is eventually what drove him and the Sundance Kid and, and Ethel Place uh, to South America. They had enough of being pursued, and they were they, they were tired of that life. Uh, which had this strange quirk where he. He's sort of outraged. Right? You know, what, don't they have anything better to do than to, to chase me? He was he was sort of filtering out the fact that he robbed banks and trains, and that's why they were chasing him. But but uh, he had that attitude, and 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 they the reason they went to South America uh, was to go straight. And then once they got there, that lasted about five years, and then the pendulum swung the other way again, fatally. So. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't known that. They they went with the intention of going straight, and they were straight for about five years in in South America, you say. And quite successful in mm-hmm. Argentina. The, the Argentina part is left out of the movie. In the movie, they just go to Bolivia, and uh, but the, that was too complicated for Hollywood. And in fact, as I say in the book, William Goldman, the screenwriter, he had a hard time convincing a studio to make this movie because they said, wow, John Wayne never ran away. You know, he didn't run away from America whenever he, you know, in the in these Western movies that he made. Uh, we can't have that, so that these guys can't run away. But but Goldman had done enough research, and he did very little research. He said he didn't want to be constrained by the facts, but 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 he he did enough that he knew that they ran away, and he considered that an intriguing part of the story that they were, you know, they were trying to give their life a second act, and uh, they were very good at ranching and all the cowboy western skills ranching and roping and shooting and um and and and, uh, and as i say they were quite successful for five years but then the pinkertons started to close in on them um the the, the pinkertons being the a private uh police force so to speak like a security force that was a national the equivalent of a national police force uh, before the FBI in, in the United States, but the thing they would be hired by corporations who were wanted to get outlaws to stop robbing them, their trains or their banks or, or whatever. So, but the, the, the Pinkertons trying to seek out business for themselves and trying to get someone to pay them to uh, to pursue Butch and Sundance in South America uh, started to get close. Uh, Butch and Sundance and Ethel were in the often the. In a, in a in a far off place called Cholila in the, in Patagonia, but they the the, the, the uh, uh, Pinkertons got into uh, Buenos Aires and started to distribute wanted posters, and they heard about it, and that spooked them. 
So the one day they just left their ranch for five years and they abandoned the ranch and took off and uh, and wound up uh, least Butch and Sundance uh, getting back into the the outlaw life again uh, and and to not a good end. By the way, you uh, you insist that uh, she's called she she was known as Ethel, not Etta, place, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Etta was a, a mistake that the Pinkertons made on one form when they were filling out when they were sending a memo to each other, and somehow it's it's stuck. Uh, all, all the scholars, and there are a number of quite serious scholars in South America who, who pay a lot of attention to Butch and Sundance and who've written many scholarly academic books on the subject, and um, um, and then in some of the United States, a little less scholarly and academic, perhaps. Uh, you know, uh, the real scholars sort of buy the fact that her name is Ethel. For one thing, it's a much more common name, but she's a woman of mystery. We know her real name, her second name wasn't Place, her last name. That was Sundance's um, um, uh, mother's maiden name. And, um, and, and, and she and Sundance were a couple. We, he, he introduced her to his family as his wife, So, but we, we, there's no record in, of their being married, but they were a couple, and um, but that's about all we know about her. And she was quite beautiful, uh, you know. Uh, you know, I, I think as beautiful as the actress who played her in the movie. Uh, and, and there's one very good picture of her, and others at more distance. But uh, she's one of the women. You know, you sometimes you hear about beautiful women, and then you see their picture, and someone has to say, well. In the context of the time, that was beauty. But in her day, I mean, she's just she's just plain out a good-looking uh, woman. And Sundance was a very handsome guy too. So they were quite the couple. And which uh, was kind of handsome. He was a good-looking guy, not as handsome as as Paul Newman, who played him in the movie. But uh, but who is? You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and my guest for the hour is Charles Learson. His new book is Butch Cassidy: The True Story of an American Outlaw. And following a break, we'll talk about the movie. More following this. Support for UPR comes from the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau gift shop, including the book 117 Amazing Things to Do in Logan and Cache Valley and other local gifts. Logan shirts, hats, and socks, games, books, and other collectibles. Located at 199 North Main in Logan. More information at explorelogan.com. The Utah Debate Commission has organized debates for candidates in all of Utah's congressional districts, as well as for candidates for governor and attorney general. UPR is broadcasting all of these debates, and the next one up features candidates for Utah's 2nd Congressional District. The Republican incumbent Chris Stewart will face two challengers, the Democratic candidate Cale Weston and the Libertarian candidate Robert Latham. Join us on Monday evening at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. Glad you're with me for Access Utime, Tom Williams, and my guest is Charles Learson. His new book is called Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. Robert Leroy Parker, who became Butch Cassidy, was of course born in Beaver, Utah and raised in Circleville, right here in Utah. Uh, Here's now the uh, last portion of the conversation with Charles Learson. I want to talk a little bit about the movie. So 1969, and at this point, uh, Butch Cassidy was not nearly as well-known as some of the other you know, famous outlaws. Uh, you say William Goldman did sporadic research. Paul Newman, I guess as it was his custom, did none. Um, but, but some family members, right, and others say, hey, I think you, I think you got Butch right in, in some ways in the movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It, 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 uh, it's really funny that uh, it, it, before the movie came out, you know, uh, Billy the Kid, Jesse James, they were household names thanks to Hollywood. But, but probably, out, you know, I'm sure in Utah, Montana, Wyoming, people knew who Butch Cassidy was. But, but he wasn't he wasn't a household name the way, the way those other guys are. Uh, Goldman had a fascination with him, but not enough of a fascination that he did all that much research. I went to, you know, William Goldman's a great screenwriter. He wrote The Sting and uh, uh, a lot of other, uh, uh, you know, very successful and uh, engaging movies. Uh, and uh, I went to look through his papers. He passed away about a year ago in, um, in, in, in Columbia University, and there's a... a folder that says Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and there's the, only, the only thing in that folder is a, a comic book from the 1950s, uh, it's a Butch and Sundance, like, one-off comic book, and and a couple of scraps of paper with notes that he, about how they ran away, and they, they trying to find their own identity, and they're, you know, they, you know, they're close to each other, but they don't even know who they themselves are, a couple of sort of poetic thoughts, and, uh, uh, and an old comic book, and that was that was the extent of it, because that's how Hollywood works, you know. And the movie famously starts out with this uh, these words on the screen that say, you know, most of what follows is true. Well, that's not the case. <laughs> most of what follows isn't true. It, the movie itself, the plot of the movie is, I mean, it's a, it's a great movie, but it's, 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 it's not all that groundbreaking. It's, it's a sort of a horse opera um, you know, with, with guys robbing trains and and the and the, the rich guys getting mad about it, and and uh, it, it, it's it, it's it's not all that uh, unusual. Um, but but what they did get right, as you say, by accident, was the character of uh, of Butch and Paul Newman just fell into his, I guess the character his his kind of default character on screen, which is charming, witty, smart, and that happened to be. Butch, and one reason we know that is uh, because in 1939, a guy named Charles Kelly wrote a book called The Outlaw Trail, and uh, uh, this is at a time when Butch's fame was probably at a low point in 1939, but Kelly became very interested in him, uh, and, and he went around, and there was still old, quite a few old codgers around who, who knew Butch or heard about him or knew him secondhand or knew him firsthand. And Charles Kelly's book is not very readable. He had to publish it himself, and it's, it's not a, exactly a page-turner. But he does have uh, great uh, interviews in there. With He did do this great service of, of scooping up all these uh, guys, and mostly men, who knew Butch and, and, and who could testify and tell stories. And it's amazing how one after the other says what a charismatic guy he was, how you wanted to be with him. You want you, you know, you wanted to be his friend and, and, uh, you know, and one reason I think, and they, as they talk and describe it is because Butch had this characteristic, this knack for making people feel good about themselves. Somehow he conveyed that, that he's interested in you and that you were the only one in the room when you, when, when, uh, he, when he was talking to you and you were talking to him, uh, he gave you this respect and this attention that I guess is maybe at the heart of what makes popular people popular. Um, but he was like that uh, all of his life. And, and we know that because Charles Kelly was able to go in and take this snapshot in 1939.
I was very interested uh, by descriptions of the, the researchers. There are people who get pulled, and, and, and some of these researchers do call it the rabbit hole. They, they go down the rabbit hole, right, researching uh, Butch and, and Sundance and the, the Wild Bunch, and, and in part because of this, uh, you know, intrigue of did they really die in South America, did they not, and, you know. Um, but right. uh, yeah, what if you talk about that? You, you, <laughs> I, I, I chuckled when you, you encountered this, uh, this lady who, who says, you know, Butch is not really worth researching, right? She's, he, he's, he didn't do much for humanity, right? Um, right. Uh, and this from a, a lady who's spent, you know, 40 years and, uh, and, uh, definitely was down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, she told me, turn back. It was like almost like at an opium den door, you know, like, don't come in here. Turn back. It's not too late. Don't get involved in this Butch Cassidy stuff. Because uh, really what happened was when the movie came out in 1969, there was, an, you know, people were, uh, were pleasantly surprised to find out that there were these whole two outlaws that they didn't really hadn't heard much about. And they seemed like appealing guys and uh, and. and you know, they got people got into this idea of tracking them down, or at least building their vacation around going out west and staying at some place called the Butch Cassidy Motel or something. You know, they became interested in them, and, and they read books about them. And they, but they, they would also go to conventions, and of course, people got into it in different levels of seriousness. And some people would deliver papers and and uh, and, and and spend their whole life doing it. And, uh, some of some people really did get caught up in it and spend a lot of money and, and time. It's kind of, uh, as time has passed, uh, that boom in research and Butch Cassidy tourism has, has receded. But, but the guys that are left, <laughs> and they're mostly guys, even though there was that one woman that I encountered, uh, uh, they're sort of sourpusses about it. You know, they, 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 even the guys, there's, there's two guys, uh, Dan Buck, who lives in Washington, and, and Mike Bell, who lives in England. I would consider them the leading authorities on Butch and the, and the Wild West Outlaws. And each have their specialties. Buck is specialized in South America, Bell in Wyoming. But even both of them said, you know, why do you, why do you care about this guy? Like, he, he, he didn't bust trust. He didn't invent the light bulb. He he, you know, he was an outlaw, and he went around and, uh, you know, he, he took other people's possessions, uh, you know, and and they and you know, he's a ne'er do well, and he's not that interesting. But meanwhile, I look at them, and I'm sitting in in uh, Dan Buck's house, which is like their memorial to books, which Cassidy and books and papers, and uh, you know, uh, that he's accumulated over the years, and and uh, and he actually went. He's sort of the ultimate researcher. He went to South America, and he and his wife, Ann Meadows. Um, dug up uh, a body down there. They got permission in the in the early '80s, and and Anne wrote a great uh, book called uh, uh, "Searching for Witch Cassidy." Um, and um, it, you know, it, 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 they went that far. It turns out that they've been given some wrong information, and they the body they dug up belonged to a uh, a German immigrant who happened to be in South America, but. Um, so people have gone to these extremes, and there's also within the researchers there's a there's an extremist group of people who I don't know I don't know why they do it, but maybe because they want to always get attention or something. They come up with fantastic claims or theories. Uh, you know, a lot of them are about you know there's someone I mentioned in the book who's who who believes that uh, you know which 
then Sundance got involved with Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, they got involved with Pancho Villa. They, uh, there's another guy who thinks that there were five Butch Cassidy clones wandering over uh, the West. Uh, and, th- and they've written books about it, and they, and they have their, their followers. And most of the crazy stories center around the fact that Butch did not die in South America and that he came back to the United States and lived until the, depending on, you know, there's different ver- ver- uh, variations on the story, to the 20s, the 30s, or the 40s is the latest I've heard. And, uh, uh, and that, you know, and the movie leaves you hanging. If you remember the movie, the, they're in a, like, they're sort of cornered in a stable or something, I guess they are, and then they say, in, in Bolivia, and they say, let's make a run for it, finally. And they make a run for it, and there's a shower of gunfire and, and a freeze frame of their faces, and you, you left to scratch your head of what actually happened. It doesn't look good. Uh, we know more about the reality. I won't spoil it for the readers. They, I believe that the circumstantial evidence is overwhelming that they they died in Bolivia in 1908. I'll leave out, but there's a twist at the end there that I'll I'll let the reader discover. Uh, but but yet there's a lot of people who want to believe that they they came back, and this is a common human thing. You know, when Jesse James uh, got shot and died, is assassinated. The, you know, there were rumors that oh, that, that that's just not you know that's not true. And the same thing with Billy the Kid, and 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 you know, we all know we some of us have lived through it with JFK that he's still living in a hospital in a vegetative state, and that Elvis is still alive, and. You know, whenever a character is very colorful, and, and especially when they die before their time and don't just get old and die, and no one no one's going to say Frank Sinatra's still alive. You know? but, but, but when they get cut down in their prime uh, or somehow or die in a, a surprising way, especially, uh, you know, those, those myths go on. So that same thing happened for Butch and Sundance. And uh, it's true we only have circumstantial evidence, but... You know, you can get executed because of circumstantial evidence. It's not a, it's not an insignificant thing, and 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 there's an overwhelming amount of it because the South Americans, the Bolivians, did a very thorough job of of uh, of legally of of uh, taking testimony and depositions and uh, doing investigations at the at the time down there and accumulated a, a whole lot of evidence that will lead you to believe that they died in, in 1908 in Bolivia. Well, a fascinating book and uh, well worth the read. Uh, appreciate you taking some some time to, to be with us today. Sure, Tom. My pleasure. And the title of the book is Butch Cassidy, The True Story of an American Outlaw. That uh, program was first broadcast uh, just this past August. Now we uh, turn to a new commentary from our new commentator, John Taylor. I guess you can thank the explorers, miners, and roughnecks who built the Transcontinental Railroad for some frisky names on Utah's map. Consider these. Drunkard's Wash up in coal country. Peter Sinks, that's an icy natural sinkhole at 8,100 feet. And Molly's Nipple. Well, excuse me, please, but there are evidently several Molly's Nipples on Utah's map, supposedly named by explorer John Kitchen to honor his wife. Wow. Utah is a Joseph's coat of names. As a newcomer to the state, I keep Wikipedia and a map handy as I listen to UPR news and weather. 
Some names flow from the Book of Mormon, some from partial melding of ancestral names, while others, I surmise, from romantic dashboard-like memories of music from the 1980s. Think Journey meets U2. I've encountered a Walmart checker named Arda, a credit union teller named Skyler, and brothers Bridger and Sawyer. Also, I've read an obituary for a San Pete County official named Orange Frederick Peel. Yep, Orange Peel. Forgive me, I graduated from NYU, not BYU. I've lived in six states moving to Utah two years ago. Very quickly, I learned that my name, John Taylor, has a backstory. First, the CVS pharmacist told me, then the air conditioner repairman, and then Margaret, who runs a used bookstore in Hurricane. It seems nearly everyone, the two Mormons of every three Utah residents, everyone educates me on my namesake, who was the third prophet tucked behind Joseph Smith and Brigham Young in establishing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The prophet Taylor died on the same month and day as my birth. My family roots are in Ireland, where he preached. Prophet Taylor had been a Methodist, as had I. He worked the fields, and I milked cows in Wisconsin. He wrote a book and edited newspapers. Me too. My wife says we resemble each other. Uh, Prophet Taylor had eight wives, so I'll cut my one-is-enough bride some slack on her definitely dubious claim. One thing is certain. My days of describing myself as just another John in Utah, those days are history. From St. George, this is John Taylor. Wishing you a joyful day. And uh, that's a commentator, uh, commentary rather from uh, John Taylor, a new commentator on Utah Public Radio. He'll be providing a commentary from St. George uh, approximately once a month right here on Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. UPR reporting is made possible in part by the Doreen and Maxim LaPlante Fund for Health and Science Journalism. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.